your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by James Boyman and Ryan Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. James here, joined by Ryan, and today we're talking a little bit of Luca Dean drama. Obviously, there's been an unfolding situation over this past couple weeks, beginning with the Arsenal game, and we are going to walk through all of it. And then in part two, we're going to get into some of the underlying numbers and perhaps dispel some of the narratives that have emerged as Luca Dean appears to be potentially on his way out of Everton and on to another club. But before we get into that, if you do enjoy the show, we would very much appreciate it if you would subscribe and give us a rating or review. Spotify just recently added the ability to rate podcasts. So if you could hit us with a five-star rating on there, that would help us out a bunch. And if you could leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great as well. And if you want to follow us on our social media platforms, you can find all of those at linktr.ee slash usatoffeepod. And you should definitely join our Discord which you can join by going to invite.gg slash ATP. Now, let's get into the Luca Dean stuff. And we're starting things off with a tweet from Everton, Nova Scotia, our Canadian brethren up north, basically like a stone's throw away for me up here in Maine. And they had an interesting take, which sets the tone for the whole conversation. And it's quite interesting. So Everton, Nova Scotia at EFC Nova Scotia said, Rafa forcing Dean out is just a further example of his power plays. Whatever you think about Dean speaking to the press, I do not in any way, shape, or form want a footballing dinosaur with a questionable transfer market record, seizing power left, right, and center at Everton. Some hot takes there from Everton, Nova Scotia. Maybe not all of it we agree with, but some of it we certainly do. I love this as the intro because it's just saucy, you know, it's just, it's, it's very much dramatic, Spicy. And not really how I know, not how we normally do stuff in the American toffee podcast, but what we like to do. And that's the theme of this episode a little bit is let's look at the facts. Let's look at the actuals. Um, let's take the information that we've gathered on the players, on the coach and try and piece this thing together and get as most informed as we can on, on, who we think's really at fault here and, and how it affects the club going forward. Um, I think a good place to start is a little bit of background on Rafael Benitez and, and whether he's exhibited this stuff in the past, which we noted he did in our assessment and, and on the podcast before in the summer. But Greg O'Keefe has a really nice article, I think, in The Athletic on what it's like to fall out with Rafael Benitez. And we're talking some really top players here, walk through and how, you know, when he makes up his mind, he makes up his mind. And I mean, we're talking like John Terry, Javi Alonso. I mean, there's some pretty top players that this has happened to. And and he does have a long history of falling out. He's not really ever been known as as a great man manager. And I think it was a lot of this research. We did a lot of similar type looking as well that led to some of the conclusions that we came up with uh, in the USA Toppy pod in our in our team assessment preview where we talked tactics and a little bit of Rafael Benitez's history and kind of led us to some conclusions that have absolutely played out so far. Yeah. And if you haven't gone back and listened to those squad assessment episodes, uh, I think they do hold up quite well. So definitely check those out. But on those episodes, two of the things that we said was Rafael Benitez coming in doesn't have much of a history of working well with directors of football, despite what he may have said upon arriving here. And so the writing was in some ways on the wall for Marcel Brands. And of course, that has now played out with Brands leaving the club. And the other piece of it was 
we didn't think it was very likely, if at all possible, that James Rodriguez would have any interest whatsoever in playing for the man who infamously benched him at Real Madrid, and they had quite a dramatic falling out as well. So just another name on the list of casualties under Rafa. Yeah, we walked through that one on the pod, too, with Hamas calling him out on national TV. I'm healthy, you know, all this other stuff is kind of funny. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's just kind of how he is. So I think it's a natural thing to look at that and say, not entirely surprising. Uh, and, look, I, I think there's merit to say that maybe Hamas was looking for new opportunities. I think when Carlo was leaving, it's natural for your agent to put out feelers. That's a totally normal thing. I mean, Mendez, of course is an agent and a super agent. You know, if he can move a client, make some money off it, he's of course going to do that. I, I'm sorry. Pardon me. Let me take that back. They're totally altruistic <laughs> and all about their clients at all time. No, in, in all seriousness, I, I get that he may have just pulled out, put out feelers, but regardless of whether he was willing to stay or not, once Rafael Benitez was named as manager, it was pretty much inevitable. Wish maybe they would have moved him during the window so we could have replaced him adequately, but that is life. But anyway, so, um, all this stuff kind of gets set in motion here first with him being held out of the Arsenal match for nothing involving health or anything. So um, there's kind of a sequence of events and a lot of words from Benitez, not many from Dean here. That's kind of gotten us to where we are right now. Yeah. So before the Arsenal match, Rafa, Rafa was asked about Luca Dean's status and he was kind of coy, played it a little uh, close to the vest and said, quote unquote, the manager decides. Uh, Benitez then dodged in the post-match, of course, after the epic Damari Gray winner. Everyone's in good spirits. He's able to kind of coyly smile at the camera and say, when asked by this guy's sports commentator, it sounds like a falling out, Rafa. And Rafa says, it sounds like Ben Godfrey is a good player and we have to get the best from him. So just refuses to even speak on Dean's absence. Says Ben Godfrey played well, which he did that match, but he doesn't want to address any sort of drama. And again, if it's not a falling out at that point, you just say, no, it's not an issue. We just select a Ben and everything's fine. But he, he doesn't say anything about the status of Luca Dean. He just says, I picked Ben, which seems really unlikely that you would willingly play a center back out of position at left back when you've got an excellent left back at your disposal. He did not do a good job of dispelling <laughs> or any sort of issue through gasoline sure. on it. Um, uh, pretty much. I mean, definitely left it wide open for speculation. And sure enough, uh, a day or two later, the Athletic came out with an article. I think it was Patty Boylan, um, maybe been Grev contributing to, but definitely Patty put it out. Um, and it, it basically said the summary we have out here on social media is Luca Dean was not in the Everton squad for the Arsenal game because of a quote unquote disagreement that he and Rafa Benitez had in Spanish during the week. I don't know why that mattered. It was in Spanish, but okay. Um, he has long been frustrated with Rafa Benitez's tactics as he feels it curbs his ability to influence games. So that's very interesting from The Athletic. Um, I think it's reasonable. We'll talk in a little bit about his, his new role this year and his performance. But what's very interesting here is Luca Dean has stayed silent for the most part throughout this whole thing. I mean, really the only communication that he has about the matches or anything came on a tweet a couple days later on the 12th. And I, I suppose this is going kind of into the palace match. I could be wrong, but his quote is head up and fight again. The game come quick. We have to do the same like against Arsenal. So I'm just kind of curious your take on this one, James is Dean playing this cool. Is this the right thing to do? Should he be maybe speaking up more or making kind of a point 
I don't, it doesn't really, I don't know if he's fanning the flames here, but I mean, certainly it's just a lot of Benitez talking and we're hearing nothing from Dean. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's interesting because on one hand, Rafa has been asked questions about it, whereas Luca Dean hasn't, but Rafa Benitez is the only one who's obligated to have media ask him questions a couple of times a week. I think if Luca Dean for some reason was asked directly about the situation, we might get, maybe he'd dodge it similarly to Rafa. We don't really know, but both sides seem not want to keep seem to want to keep this in house by and large. I think if you're Luca Dean and you're frustrated with the manager and how things are going, you may want to put something out. But it's also never really seemed to be in his nature to want to ruffle feathers or be dramatic and, and cause a public disturbance over something. Yeah, that's very true. And I think if anything, there there have been a couple things come out recently indicating maybe Dean's relationships in the past with managers wasn't perfect, but Nothing dramatic, and certainly we don't remember anything dramatic, or else it would have been reported at the time it happened. It really wasn't, other than him just being a competitive and, frankly, an elite left back. So, um, obviously, he wants to play a major role. I, I see no nothing in the past that would indicate him. Mean, this guy's captain the side. Nothing that would indicate he's the type of person to make a big stink. So, in that case, if I'm Dean, I'm probably not going to say anything. Unless something comes out like a report in the press that really kind of calls him out directly. But none of this does too. I mean, the athletic and, and to Patty's credit, Patty is very neutral and objective. You know, he's more facts based. He, he tells it like he sees. He's not sensationalist. So and, and they're doing the bulk of the reporting on kind of how Dean's camp and how Dean is felt. And I think it's fairly measured. So I, I don't think there's anything Dean really needs to respond to that much, at least at this point. Although some of the things said in the lead up to the Chelsea match. I maybe want to say something too, because I think there is some implication in terms of what Benitez said before this one that matters to me, at least. Yeah, because up to this point, Benitez has basically said, you know, I've elected not to play Dean, but then it escalates, I think, a little bit in in the quote before the Chelsea match. He says, Lucas Dean's a good player. He was an important player for us, was an important player, emphasis. And yesterday he was in the training session and was in the 11 starters. Today, he said he was ill and is not available for tomorrow. Question becomes, Rafa's quoting Dean for all intents and purposes. He's saying he said he was ill and is not available for tomorrow? Or is he saying he said he was ill and then I told him, well, you're not playing anyway. You're not available. So this would be something where it's there. I think there's a little bit of confusion as to what exactly was that conversation like. And there were some jokes, you know, people saying, uh, Luca Dean calls Rafa and says, you know, I'm sick of your crap, Rafa. And, <laughs> and Rafa goes, oh, yeah. he said he was ill. So who knows what the actual <laughs> yeah, conversation I mean, it, was it, like. It, it reminds me of the Seinfeld episode about these pretzels are making me thirsty, you know, emphasizing <laughs> on different words in the sentence. It right. means something totally different. So uh, no idea here. Now, if I'm Dean, I might try and address this one in a sneaky way. I, I don't know how I handle this, but a lot of people took this to mean he basically told him he's not playing the next day because he's sick. I didn't necessarily when I kind of read this because I thought that would be a little out of character for the player. Again, I, we don't really know these guys. You know, we know a bit yeah. about them, maybe. Um, but that seemed that seems a little out of character for me. So uh, is this Dean going on strike? Is this just Benitez not selecting him? Do we think he's insulted him? So I'm kind of curious what you think. Who do you feel like is more at, at fault here? Or are these, uh, is this just Rafa being Rafa? Or I don't know. Certainly this can't be good for the team not having him out there for selection. 
Yeah, and I think we'll explore that question of how important and what has Dean's form been like. How important is he to the team and what's his form been like over the last whatever time frame you really want to use. But this season, I think, specifically has come under scrutiny. But in terms of the relationship, Benitez is more or less a known article. You know what you're going to get with him. He's not going to be a an arm-around-the-shoulder guy. He's not going to boost guys up, but he's going to try and improve them by being meticulous and maybe could characterize it as nitpicky about players' performances. And he's known to fall out with some of his higher-profile players. And make no mistake, I think people maybe have like this these view professional footballers in like a romantic lens in some sense where it's different from any other employer-employee situation. And in some ways it is, but at the end of the day, this guy's his boss and not everyone always agrees with their boss and people argue with their boss all the time. The boss calls the shots. You kind of have to fall in line or there's going to be repercussions. That said, Luca Dean, an excellent player, been a mainstay in the side since he joined. I have a hard time. I don't feel like we're a better side without him in it, in the team. And he may be looking at his last three years with Everton and say, look, I'm 28 now. I would like to play champions league football again. Um, it's time for me to go. And I, I don't like the guy that's currently at the helm. And I think, I don't think anyone would begrudge him for having that opinion. No, but he still signed a new deal in February. Right. So if he really wanted out, I mean, this summer when Carlo left and, and he wasn't brought in when Carlo was here, there would have been plenty of time for make to make that happen. So We'll get into Dean's performance here in a second and whether it's wise, we should move him on, things like that. We're going to explore the rest of that um, in the remainder of the time we have in the pod. But I, I think in general, if you put a gun to my head and said, choose, <laughs> I would, I would of course, choose Dean over Benitez in general in terms of value to the club because I don't think Benitez is doing the greatest job as a manager. I recognize that you have to respect the manager's opinion, and that's fine, but he's got a long history of this type of stuff. So uh, to me... This is probably Benitez. It's certainly some of the decisions he's made in terms of choosing the attack more down the right, uh, putting in a more defensive role, stripping him of corner duties, for example, in match week four, I think is was a ludicrous decision. I, I think that is a real disrespectful slap in the face type thing to de have Dean defer to Andrus Townsend, who just came on board, been an Everton player at that point for four weeks of the Premier League season. Doesn't have an amazing, I mean, he's a good set-piece guy. He's not great. This isn't James Rodriguez he's deferring to. So I could totally understand why Dean would be frustrated in his current role. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between, but uh, certainly it's not good for the club. And I would think most managers would want to accommodate a little bit to a player. But more importantly, I think it's better for the club if he is playing Ideally, he is attacking a little bit more. We're attacking more from that side from the other one. But, you know, I don't think Benitez is doing a great job tactically either. So that's probably why I'm kind of leaning to say, geez, I mean, I think Luca Dean is probably less at fault, but we just don't know. We just don't know, but we will explore some of the stats and some of the potential uh, short-term memory loss that seems to be occurring amongst the Everton fan base when they look and even long-term memory loss as we look back over Luca Dean's time in Everton. But we'll be back in a sec to talk more about that. Stay with us. We're going to start with looking at trying to understand, and this is something Ryan talks about very often and something we talk about often on the show, why we use data in the first place and why it's important to use it in conjunction with the proverbial eye test, which we hear a lot about. Yeah, there's always this conflict for some reason between the eye test to some people and the stats 
test for lack of a better term. Um, all data does is provide you different information, more information, and that's all it is. It's useful. So, so number one, in terms of conflict, there usually isn't a conflict. Normally what you're observing is reflected in the stats and the stats represent actual events, um, that people are either tracking or that are derived from, um, full motion video stuff where you're just lifting data off the screen. Um, but I, I think one misnomer is no analyst out there that works in data would ever tell you that the numbers are it. It never tells the whole story. And we all know that. So this idea that, oh, you only make your opinions informed by stats. I don't know who you're talking about because truly no analyst that works with numbers that they all know the limitation of it. So that that's a misnomer from the get go. Um, I think sometimes when people see stats or, or they see a number and it seems to conflict with what they believe, sometimes it's just a matter of using the wrong stats because people say, well, the stats aren't good. That's a bad stat. Stats are bad. They don't tell you the real story. Well, which stats are you talking about? So if all you're using are goals and assists, assists is a terrible stat, I might add, because it's contingent upon someone else finishing a ball. We could tap it to someone and they knock it in from 40 yards and assist. It really doesn't really get to the heart of what you're trying to measure. Um, you know, sometimes that's not relevant. Like in Luca Dean's case, we wouldn't measure him by goals. He very rarely is an opportunity to score, let alone taking shots. That's just not, not a useful measure for that, that type of player. You know, so, so I think that's a misnomer. A lot of people are like, well, look at his numbers. He, he doesn't show any output. Well, you're using maybe not the best stats to measure output, but at least you're acknowledging the stats provide some sort of objective reality. So that's the whole point. You know, stats don't ever tell the whole story. No analyst thinks that. So I, you're not arguing with anyone by saying that. But if you're, if you're willing to use stats, I think it's important to pick and choose and understand the ones that measure stuff that's more appropriate for the position. Now, there's also bias, right, James? I mean, that's a big part of, of sometimes, um, you know, maybe it's just lack of analytical thought process behind it, but certainly bias plays a role in, in everything. Even the best analyst has some. Yeah, everyone everyone has bias. And I think it's kind of hard for maybe people to, to realize, but there's like two dozen different kinds of biases that people can hold. Um, and, and it's really important to avoid those biases and be aware of them when you're trying to analyze any type of information, whether it's football related, life related, it can be anything. Um, one of the big ones is confirmation bias, where you have your opinion. And so you selectively choose points that back up what you already think and ignore the ones that might contradict what you think. Um, and and there, again, there's dozens, but one big thing is recency bias or you know, a bias towards forgetting the past and only only going off the most recent information. And then another one that people are, are subject to, I think, when they're watching a football match is the big events, right? You remember the big impactful events, such as in Luca Dean's case, getting burned by Max Aarons in the Norwich game or getting burned by Jordan Henderson against in, in the Derby. You remember those things and they stick clearly in your mind. And so you think you use those moments to form a larger opinion about the player. And in doing so, you forget maybe the half dozen times Luka Dean stuffed Mo Salah in the derby or the number of times he bottled a player. And you just, in the course of watching a match, you're not watching one player through the whole the whole thing. And that's where I think there's some flaws to the eye test. And, those and again, get, we're not saying... And those can all get mixed in together too. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, sometimes confirmation bias is a real dangerous one. But you mix them all together, you're going to have some. So it's important to kind of recognize those things as well. 
you know, I think another thing though, too, is, is the eye test. A lot of people don't realize yeah. the eye test doesn't tell you everything either. Does it? No, the eye test is, of course, we're all watching the match. We want to enjoy watching the match. No one is going to say, don't watch the match and just go look at numbers and expect to get a realistic picture of what happened. Right. That's how traditionally the game has been consumed, but it doesn't tell the whole story because in order to really get a full picture of, to answer a question such as, is Luca Dean a good left back? You would have to watch just Luca Dean in every match for the full time he's on the pitch and make note of every single action that he makes while he's playing. Is he getting up and down? Most people aren't doing that. I'm certainly not doing it when I'm watching the match live. I'm watching uh, I'm watching the ball a lot of the time, or I'm watching the movement of the entire defensive back line. I'm not just watching one player because that's just a bizarre way to consume football. And it's not always that entertaining. It's not that bizarre. Who we call them? <laughs> <laughs> it's not what the average person does. True. Let's put it that way. Of course. And the other thing you would have to do if you're looking at, is Luka Dean a good player? is you would have to then watch not only all his matches, but every other match by every other left back in the Premier League and figure out some way to compare those by some measure. You could use the eye test, but again, by the time you're on the third or fourth match of watching you know, Jao Cancelo, you're going to forget <laughs> half of the actions that Luca Dean made in the third match of the season. So it just it's impossible for people to retain all of that information and then oftentimes even to consume it all. And so that's why mm. we use stats because they measure these things for us to support things that we can observe when we're actually watching live. Yeah, it's just more information that helps. It helps give you the context sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes you can see what you think you observe. And if it's ratified with the stats, normally you're like, yeah, I feel pretty good about things. Yeah. The one thing too, that I get all the time is, you know, watch the games. Football's not played on a spreadsheet. That's the one that I have to admit irks me a little bit because it's just, it's an insult. I mean, we're not Neanderthals now. I believe we've evolved to the point in, you know, as human beings, our race is capable of watching a game. And in my case, I, I recognize I'm not normal, but I tend to watch the matches two or three times at least. You are not. And take lots of notes and all, all sorts of things like that. But then I'll go and look at the data. I It takes me five, ten minutes to look at the data. It takes me a lot longer to watch the matches. So there's nothing I'm not incapable as a human of using my eyes. And it's just this kind of a silly, silly idea. Like I would just do both. Like there's nothing prohibiting me from doing that as a human right. being. So that one irks me a little bit, I have to admit. So, but that, that's a silly argument. I mean, so anyway, that that's the point. Maybe that was unnecessary to go into background, but we thought it was important that we're going to try. And we always try to do this on the American Toffee podcast to be objective. And look, we all have feelings. We're all passionate. You know, I get it. So, all right, let's apply some of those standards and, you know, viewers, keep us honest and listeners, please, uh, as many of you normally do. And let's talk first about Luca Dean's performance this year. We'll get to next year in a second. Let's just talk about this year in particular. It seems some people really still don't believe that he's definitely in a different role. Yeah. And this is something we've covered extensively on the American Toffee podcast, but it's been covered also by others. Adam Jones from the Liverpool Echo came out with an article in November quoting Luca Dean himself, where he said, the manager asked me to be more of a defender this season, to stay back a bit more and keep a better balance for the team. Then sometimes I can drive forwards, but only when it's right for the team. My first job is to defend. I am a left back. If the manager asked me to defend 99% of the time, I would defend 99% of the time. So he goes on to say, you know, this is for the good of the team, et cetera, et cetera. But <clears throat> being predominantly a defensive player is not how Luca Dean has always been used since he's been in an Everton shirt. People will remember or should remember quite well how critical he was to our offense 
when he first arrived, his ability to get forward, his ability to cross, his ability to be dangerous in the final third, his passing ability, all these things, which we'll talk about coming up. But it's certainly a much, much different role for Dean being asked to defend. And there's a reason for that. And it has to do with the larger tactical plan that Rafa Benitez has implemented at Everton. And I think it's probably not the wisest thing in the world to attack more in the right through Coleman or Townsend or whoever else is out there rather than Dean. And I think that's a very logical assumption. And I think Dean's probably a little ticked about it. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense to him. But it's true. If you think about it, too, it's almost worse. It's one thing for him to defend more just by the nature of the role and the tactics. Look at the players around him. I mean, typically we're setting up, especially when Gray's off to the left, they're pretty much in a free role. So if they're kind of free, that that gets him more exposed. I, I think Alon this year has been downright reckless. And Rafael Benitez is convinced he's more of the sitting midfielder as opposed to DeCorey's who's getting up the pitch more. And he's been reckless and, and leaving the back line very much exposed. We talk, you constantly call it the gap. Uh, you know, the space we're leaving between the back lines. And Dean is having to deal with that. Another reason why is Michael Keane is not that comfortable stepping up as a center half. So all of these things in, in conjunction leave Luca Dean on an island very often. So it's not just the role. It's also the players around him. And, and I think it's very obvious this is happening through the eye test. But the stats also give you a little bit of feedback, too. So if you just look at them, some of these things are definitely going to a, a affect the way he attacks going forward so number one he was taken off set pieces in week four in corners which i i think was a slap in the face and i'm sure he took it that way it's not like he's being replaced with thomas rodriguez here as we said in the first half so yeah I, i'm probably a little ticked about that if i am him um but it, look he's only taken two corners since week four so that's going to affect naturally your overarching production if you're not savvy enough to say oh well he's getting a lot of open play chances versus set piece chances because you get to pick and choose who takes them beyond that too. Just look at his touches. I mean, he's, I think he's only had more than one or zero touches in the penalty area in only two games this year, last year in 30 games he played, he did that in 13. So they're way down. He's at like 1.3 last year to 1.15. Um, his touches in the attacking third down are, are down by a couple as well. So I think it's very obvious. And you look at the numbers that, you know, he's not attacking as often and it's tactical. And I think also people remember last year, this is maybe a bit of a recency bias. He didn't get into the box a single time in the last five matches because you know, Carlo was being very pragmatic. And I think that was totally reasonable. So I think sometimes people are forgetting about that. But OK, this stuff is affecting the offensive production. We know it's down because of his role. But then, OK, he's defending more. So one thing we've heard a lot, I've heard a lot of people say out, especially in social media, is this claim that Luca Dean is a poor defender. Yeah, I've seen it plenty. I mean, people have said he's a bang average defender. He gets beaten constantly one-on-one uh, -on -one versus the dribble. He's a shell of his former self, what he was when he first arrived. A lot of these statements that, um, frankly, I haven't really noticed watching the matches. Yes, I remember the moments like I mentioned earlier, when he got rinsed by Max Aarons or he got beat once or twice in a match and maybe those led to goals. And, and that's important to remember. And those were pivotal moments in matches. But I don't remember every duel Luka Dean has been in this season. And I certainly don't remember the percentage that he's won, which is why it's so important that we measure these things and we have people who closely analyze the data, keep track of all of that. And then you can get a better picture. Well, because it's also relative to the other people in the position. So right. I, I sent out a series of tweets um, a, a week or so ago to try and 
put things in perspective because I'm observing nothing about him that makes him a bad defensive left back. In fact, I think it's crazy. It's a testament to his ability that he can attack the way he could and yet actually play in a role like he is right now, especially considering the people around him. So first tweet said of of left backs in the Premier League with over 450 minutes. And again, this is a week ago. Dean's averaging 11.85 successful defensive actions with a 66% dual win rate. All right. So defensive duels are tackles, you know, any sort of engagement whatsoever. And I, and I wrote, guess how many other players can say that? The answer? Zero. And the point I'm trying to make is, again, there's context behind that. But that's not insignificant. It says something, I think. But again, there is context, right, James? Yeah, of course there's context. But it shows you that guys who are playing left back in those two metrics, defensive actions, he's winning a bunch, almost 12 a match. Yeah. Or 12 per 90, I should say. And a 66% dual win rate. And that is far and away much higher than anyone else in the Premier League in his peer group. So to say he's a poor defender, well, if you believe that, then you also have to believe that almost everyone else is worse I mean, than him. I mean, certainly in that metric, but it's not just yes. that metric. And that was the point I was trying to make. So so let's tack on to it next week. Top 20 in the Premier League in interceptions. Top five in tackles one in the final third. And he's already, you know, and his, his aerial numbers have always been outstanding. No, no one's obviously ever going to say he's bad in the air as a left back. He's one of the best in the league. So, so even beyond that, so the idea that he's being beat on the dribble a ton, I, I've seen that. I mean, that's a stat and a yeah. metric that people specifically track. He's third in the Premier League in tackles versus the dribbles. And so you're thinking, well, yeah, he's just having a lot of tackles because he's being attacked. Well, he's fifth in, per, in win percentage. So what are you talking about? So the numbers indicate not only is he not a bad defender, he's one of the best defenders in the league is what the numbers say. Now, again, there's context, but this is comparing him to everyone in the league, some of these numbers. So if it'd be one thing, if it was just a volume-based metric, but the rates are no joke and they've always been pretty solid. They're just up a little bit this year. So the numbers certainly indicate he's a very good defensive left back. So Look, I don't observe anything different. He does make mistakes like everyone else does. But if you watch a lot of football, I mean, it's tough to defend 1v1, especially against the players in the Premier League. And, you know, for me, I'm not seeing it. And I think the numbers support it as well. So, so okay, that's this year. All right, different role. Production is outrageous. Let's talk about last year because I feel like there's been some feedback from some other people that he had a good first half and a poor second half. Yeah, there's there's this weird thing that's happened where people the narrative started, I think, right around when the falling out with Rafa began that he's been out of form this season and that's why he's been benched. He's been bang average, all this sort of stuff. And somehow now people are saying he's been poor for the better part of two seasons. And I honestly don't know where that came from, because we've been at one point we had to like check ourselves on the American Toffee podcast because we rarely talked about how good Luca Dean consistently was just because he had set the standards so high for himself that even when he was a little below that, you know, he was still very, very it's good. It's a running so it's joke. It was like a running joke yeah. on the pot. Right. So I, I'm i not having anyone say that he's been poor for two, two plus years, even some saying three plus years, which is just lunacy to me. I won't, I won't have it, and I don't think there's anyone that can provide any evidence other than naming individual plays that don't really mean anything when you add context to them that support that 
opinion, frankly. Yeah, so so let's take a step back and say, okay, maybe some of the people saying this are not completely insane. There must be some sure. reason why they think that, all right? And and I, I think they're wrong, and we can say that they're wrong, and that's fine. But being the American Toffee podcast as we are, taking a step back is there some reasons. And, and I have to admit, there are some indicators that if you were kind of lazy, and this goes back to some of the bias, you know, focusing on certain types of stats or or recency bias that might indicate someone thinks that he had a better first half. Yeah. So if you look at, you break it out, he played 30 matches for us last season. You break it out straight down the middle, first 15 versus second 15. The first thing that will stick out is that in the first 15 matches he played, he had six assists. In the second 15, he only had one. So someone would look at that and without looking any deeper say, well, he wasn't nearly as creative in the second half as he was in the first because he had six times more assists in the first half. But you dig in a little deeper, you start looking at some of those other numbers, and it turns out that this is a good illustration of why assist isn't great because you're so dependent on, like he could have been firing in just as many creative passes, and it turns out he was. His shot created actions in the second half were much higher. He had 40 versus 30. His expected assists, 2.9 versus 2.4. He had more progressive passes, 58 to 50, a higher XG. So the numbers just start to add up. And again, one of these things in isolation could be just a fluke or something, but in all together, they start to paint a pretty convincing picture. Yeah, it just goes back again to bias. So we remember big events. I mean, Dominic Calvert-Lewin was on fire last year at the beginning of the year, and he was finishing everything. So that's part of it. And, and yeah, so you remember the big goals, the assists. And because at the end of the year, we started tailing off, people maybe forget about the performance on the first half or, or because those big events are happening, maybe people missed them, but that's pretty obvious. I mean, uh, and expect that's why expected assists is just such a better metric, you know, because it measures the quality of the chance and essence you created for the other person and just shot created actions is a volume stat. And it's very obvious. And it's not like, I mean, he had more passes in the first half and we had more of the ball. But yeah. I mean, dribbles were way up as well. I mean, he had like twice as many attempts in that second half if we're doing the 15 games for the 15 games at like 73%. I mean, he was dribbling like a maniac because he had to. Because I mean, we were relying on him to try and create more. And so, look, I, I think he was simply more creative in the second half. And I think the metrics indicate that. And the six assists were really just a byproduct of luck. I mean, I really think that's all it was. You could say, well, the quality's not there. Well, I mean, the numbers seem to say very much something different. Um, and sometimes people associate overall form of a club with the individuals. So, you know, when people are playing not so well around you, it doesn't mean necessarily that Dean is at fault. It could be other people as well. Um, but again, it's a fluid game. I, I get that. We're just saying, objectively speaking, the numbers don't tell that picture at all. He was every bit as creative in the second half. So let's talk about defense a little bit. So look, his volume was higher in the second half, for sure. Tackles one were the same, just using some basic numbers. Interceptions were twice as high. 17 versus nine. He had way more clearances, 55 to 37. That's probably just because he's defending more. So let's ignore volume numbers. Tackle rates, much higher. 69% versus 53%. Pressure rates, slightly less, but it's like 25.2 versus 26.2. So, so the point is, there's certainly no statistical evidence on the defensive side that he was worse. Because it'd be one thing if you saw higher volume and, and a lot and a lower win rate. And probably right. what was happening is it's the same Luca Dean. He was just up in the pitch more and making tackles higher in the pitch. And I think that was true. Um, and those are normally a, a lower win rate and a lower percentage. So so anyway, all I'm saying is we look at those numbers and 
I mean, is there anything objective that we can look at, James, that would indicate his form has dropped at all from the first half to the second half? Not that I can really see. And I th- There's no. And I think that's major... objective. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, we're trying to be objective here, and I, I think we were successful in doing that. I like Luca Dean as a player, but I'm also not, you know, dug in on this idea that he's been great. I just want to try to formulate an opinion with as much information as I can possibly get. And the numbers tell me he's been quite good. If they said otherwise, you know, we're not trying to fit these numbers into this neat little box to fit a narrative. It's just taking them for what they're worth. And this is what they say. So you can believe it. You cannot believe it. You can trust the eye test, but we've been over why you may be, uh, there may be some, some blind spots when you try to do that. And then you look at, okay, so we're, we're in this riff with Rafa where he's been benched and he's supposedly sick and he may have faked sick. We don't know. He hasn't really said anything. We talked about it, but if he were to go, if he was truly out of form and playing poorly, just signed a new contract, would all of these quite good and wealthy clubs looking to compete for trophies and win the champions league and do all these sorts of things. Would these be the type of clubs that you would think would want to come in for him? Because we know there's a lot of players who have underperformed in an Everton shirt and we've had some real problems over the last three or four seasons getting rid of those guys. Luca Dean doesn't seem like the type of player who would be difficult to move. In fact, it seems like he'd be pretty easy to move. The question becomes, what type of fee do you get for him? And what's the plan when you try to replace one of your best players moving forward? But we talked about it a little bit, Ryan. The, in theory, moving on one of your best players for a big fee who's now 28 could make sense. Because that's sort of the direction that Everton need to go strategically to be run sustainably, right? Yeah, I think that's a, a wise decision in many cases. Um, I think the circumstance around it is not ideal. I don't think this is maybe the right time. And those are things that we're going to explore in, in future episode on on Toffee, on uh, the American Toffee podcast, and perhaps on Toffee TV as well. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, Man City, Chelsea, if these teams were interested in him, obviously he's okay. Um, and, and most people at that age, maybe, you know, he wouldn't be quite as attractive due to that age, but he's just simply that outstanding. And his versatility is is something that teams would want. He can fit in a lot of different styles. That's another indicator. Some of these teams play in different ways and they still want them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the bottom line is we just look, we took an objective view. Um, my eye test tells me he looks like the same darn player. And just in general, I mean, really? Would it make that much sense where someone has been that elite a player for so long at age 28 that he suddenly lost a lot? I mean, yes, I agree that might be slightly on the down end for certain players, but not for good players and not for elite players. Normally, they're able to sustain their their form uh, much longer. And like you said, these teams wouldn't be after him if they if they didn't think that. So look, this is our take. You can agree, disagree, love to get feedback and opinions. But in our our eyes, I think both of us agree that the eye test, the numbers, it all seems to sync up for me that Luca Dean is every bit the player as he was last year, the year before, as far as we can tell. And uh, hopefully these guys can get things ironed out. And if he's got to go, he's got to go. But uh, we'll do some further analysis on that scenario, how much we think we could get for him, and his replacement on future episodes of the American Toffee Podcast. Yeah. And again, if you disagree, if you want to sound off in the comments, absolutely let us know. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, you can find all of our social media links at linktr.ee slash USA Toffee Pod, which will be in the description. You can send us an email uh, at American Toffee at gmail.com. 
Let us know what you think. We appreciate the feedback. We appreciate the back and forth very much. Uh, if you want to join our Discord, you can also do that. It's a great community. We've got a lot of people in there who have a very well-reasoned and we have some very thoughtful and intelligent conversations about Everton. You can find that at invite.gg slash ATP. Otherwise, we thank you very much for listening and watching. We hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, up the toffees.